Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 38, as Dr. Newfeld continues his series, Your Salvation Story, with a message entitled, Faith and Repentance. a memory from my pastoral experience that, that still strikes me as strange. You know, a couple had come to see me for pastoral counseling. They were arguing with one another as they entered my office, and at least so it appeared to me, they were in no mood to end the conflict just because they were now in my office. As things turned out, this was not completely unhelpful, as it did give me insight into what was troubling their relationship. But as we eventually talked, I was surprised to hear of their conversion stories. Now, please don't hear me say that genuine conversion means you won't have problems in your marriage. After all, we all still struggle with our flesh, and marriage does present us, even the saints, with their struggles. And so I don't mention this to in any way malign this couple that was genuinely trying to work their way through some of their conflicts. But that brings me back to the man's conversion story. He had attended a meeting which included an altar call and was deeply convicted to respond. But here I want to protect his identity. Let's just say that he was involved in a financial enterprise that was deeply incongruent with the Christian faith. And so it was he who raised the issue. He had asked the counselor at that meeting, am I going to have to give this matter up if I come to Christ? And the counselor said, look, Why don't we just leave that for another time? All you have to do today is just ask Jesus to come into your heart. And even though this man did change businesses eventually, as seed had been sown into his heart, faith in Christ and repentance of sins were for him two separate matters. In his mind, you can believe without repentance. And it is this that I want to address today. You know, I've been teaching through a one-week series on the matter of conversion, genuine conversion both what God promises to all who are born again and what requirement is placed on those who want to be saved. And yesterday, I addressed the matter of faith. I noted that in the case of the Philippian jailer, all that Paul said was, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But I also noted that the jailer had heard Paul and had come to know about his sin and the judgment of God and about the cross. And so he knew he needed to act. But what must he do? You know, today I want to ask the question of repentance. Is repentance from sin necessary for believing? That is, when a person comes to the point where they wish to respond, is it necessary for them to repent? Did Paul ask the Philippian jailer to repent? Now, if you will, I want to take you back in time. John Owen lived in the 1600s. He was a Puritan pastor, an evangelist, and a preacher. And if you've never heard anything like it, listen as Owen has been preaching from Matthew 11, 28 to 30, where Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I want you to listen now to Owen's invitation, or basically, this is his altar call. He says, this is somewhat of the word which he now speaks unto you. Why will ye die? Why will ye not have compassion on your own souls? Can your hearts endure or can your hands be strong in the day of wrath that is approaching? Look unto me and be saved. Come unto me and I will ease you of all sins, sorrows, fears, burdens, and give rest to your souls. Come, I entreat you. 
Lay aside all procrastinations, all delays. Put me off no more. Eternity lies at the door. Do not so hate me as that you will perish, then accept the deliverance by me. Wow. I mean, we need to hear the urgency in this godly pastor's voice. He warns of the coming day of judgment and of the wrath of God. He urges them not to delay. He says, don't procrastinate. He tells them they can lay their sorrows and burdens at the door of a Savior and their souls will have rest. But, but he also tells them they have to lay their sins at that same door. And then they must, he says, have a deep concern over the state of their soul. He calls it compassion for your own soul. You hear the call to repentance in his voice? And so we need to ask the question, is it necessary to repent from our sins? Should we be alarmed that our sins will weigh against us in the judgment? Or is it simply enough to say that your life is now you know, meaningless and you're burdened by many things and Christ comes to offer you joy and meaning? You know, so come and just accept him. So let's begin by defining what we mean when we say repentance. Repentance involves at least three things. And the first is sorrow. It's an emotional word, and it can mean weeping, but it can also refer to alarm or a deep anxiety or dread of what my sins involve. It means my sin becomes personal. It's not just a concept like, you know, I believe in the universal sin of all people, so I guess I'm included in that category. No, no. It's more than a mere intellectual acknowledgement of sin. It's owning our own personal sin, and it's finding our sins loathsome, offensive, and unacceptable. It was Augustine who said that when we confess that we're sinners, that for the first time in our lives, we actually agree with God. God says we're sinners, and now we agree. But as I've said, this is so profoundly personal. It's a personal thing brought on by the conviction of the Holy Spirit that says, look, I'm in mortal danger and I need to be saved. My sins are like a rock that's tied to me and it's drowning me in the ocean of God's righteousness. Now, a second aspect of repentance is a deep desire to be done with sin. You know, once having found sin so sinful, so unacceptable, so utterly violent, foul, it's the desire to wash our hands of our own sin. I know it's a very difficult thing to forsake sin. Sin has tentacles around our soul. You know, I remember years ago, Kathy and I were renting a house, and the back stairs leading up to the house, th there was a tree growing up through the steps. You know, I got under there with a small axe, and I chopped it down only to find it was growing back very quickly. And I, I soon learned that the roots of that tree ran very deep, and I needed to get to the roots. Sin's like that. It has tentacles around our soul. But repentance is the heartfelt desire to be done with it for all time, to forsake it, to pull the very root of the thing right out. So repentance first involves heartfelt sorrow for sin. It involves a desire to turn our backs on sin, to turn from it. And third, it's a genuine repentance when it looks to Christ as the only hope for salvation from sin. It means we long to walk in obedience to Christ rather than in obedience to sin. It was Bob Dylan who once sang in his better days, he was saying, you got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. Genuine repentance says, I'm fleeing from slavery to sin and I'm fleeing to slavery to Jesus Christ, my master. Now then, did the apostles preach that way? Yeah, they did. 
Listen, as Paul shares the gospel with a man named Antonius Felix, who was the procurator of Judea at that time. I'm reading Acts 24, verses 24 and 25. It says, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. See, does that sound like a strange evangelistic message? Where's that part about, you know, Jesus will give you meaning and purpose in your life? It's missing. And in its place is the ancient Christian gospel about what genuine righteousness looks like and how God is righteous and the self-control that God demands of us and how we've failed and about the judgment that is to come and the knowledge we're not going to make it. Paul is going to proclaim Jesus as the Savior from our sins and from the coming judgment. Again, does that sound like a strange method of evangelism? Listen to Paul's plain explanation of his message, and here I'm reading his words found in 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 and 10. It reads, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, we see here there is a worldly grief. I would argue that worldly grief is sorrow for the effects of sin. Now, we see that all the time with, you know, either politicians or athletes or movie stars or even famous preachers and priests who who are discovered in sin and then exposed. Of course, they're grieved. They're grieved by the punishment that sin has given them. But godly grief is a hatefulness not so much of the consequences of sin, but it's a hatred of sin itself. It finds sin to be hateful. That's why it produces repentance. It's a different kind of grieving. It's a different kind of longing to turn from sin. It produces a faith in Jesus, for it finds Jesus to be the only one who isn't stained by sin and therefore longs to turn to him as the Savior. Ah, I hope you're hearing me. I don't think we can talk about faith in Jesus without speaking of repentance. The person who wants Jesus for meaning and comfort, but doesn't seek him as the savior from sin, has a different Jesus in mind than the real one. This past month was Back to the Bible Canada's International Ministry Month. So on behalf of Back to the Bible Canada and our international partners, we want to express our appreciation for the gracious gifts you've given to sustain and grow our global Bible teaching efforts. Your support allows Bible teaching resources and programming to be sent to partners every month, ensuring a consistent flow of excellence and trustworthy Bible teaching. And we're so blessed for the opportunity to support and participate in International Pastors Bible Teaching Conferences. Thank you to all those who chose to sponsor a pastor. Please continue to pray and consider how you might contribute to these ongoing international initiatives, or even consider becoming an international monthly partner. So call today for more information or to offer your gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Repentance and faith always belong together. 
You know, genuine salvation involves both. But even saying it that way is perhaps misleading. You know, the Bible doesn't have to say repentance and faith. It can simply say faith, for that's what faith is. It's turning from sin and turning to Christ. And if we in our confusion should therefore think of faith as believing in Jesus without turning from our sins, well, we're not thinking about biblical faith at all. So let's read the scripture. Luke 24, 45 to 47 is about Jesus after he's risen from the dead and he is speaking to the Emmaus disciples. It says, then he opened their minds to understand the scripture and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Or listen to Peter's first evangelistic message on the day of Pentecost. It's found in Acts 2, verses 37 and 38. But when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And now to Acts 3, verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Acts 5, 30-31. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Now, even beyond the borders of Israel and all the way to Greece, hear Paul's message in Acts 17, verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now... He commands all people everywhere to repent. And finally, listen to Paul summarizing a lifetime of ministry. Luke records these words in Acts 20, verses 20 to 21. He says, How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's time to say something that will be quite controversial, but I believe that everywhere scriptures testify that what I'm about to say is absolutely true. When we preach a gospel that invites people to ask Jesus to come into their hearts or lives and make them the kind of person he wants them to be, instead of commanding men and women to repent of their sins and flee from the judgment to come, and to trust in Jesus to save them from their sins. You see, when that happens, we have ushered millions upon millions of people into a false gospel. We have deceived them. Today in North America, there are untold millions in churches who have never been born again and who have deceived themselves of their status before God. They have bought into a gospel of easy believism, and they're unaware of genuine faith. Unlike Paul, they've never heard a pastor reason with them about righteousness and judgment and self-control and the coming judgment. And so they have not sought Jesus as the Savior from their sin. Instead, they think of Jesus as the Savior in the sense that he saves them from psychological distress or from deep inner hurts and from living unfulfilled lives. It is this Jesus they believe in. And in consequence, we're now seeing a great multitude who are leaving the church for they're disillusioned. 
Jesus was supposed to lift all their burdens, and here they are, with illnesses and financial distress and anxiety that has not been relieved, with with hurts that he's not healed, and with, with enemies and suffering that he's not removed. And so these people are disappointed with Jesus, and they say, Jesus didn't deliver. He didn't save the way he promised. And to that I would respond, the Jesus you came to believe in doesn't actually exist. You've believed in an idol. That's why you've not been rescued, for no such rescue as you were expecting had ever been promised you. Instead, the real Jesus, when we seek him for salvation from sin and from the coming righteous judgment, is going to send hardship and distress into our lives, and he'll send these out of his love so that he might break our attachment to this world and so that we might come to the conclusion that this earth has no comfort to give. The real Jesus promises us what's in Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. If you flee your sins and turn to Christ for salvation, he will give you the privilege that you might take up your cross and follow him and forsake all things and cling only to him. Ah, don't you see it? To the woman in Samaria, Jesus said, Call your husband. Oh, she had been through many husbands, husband after husband. And she saw that a loving Savior was about to expose her sin. To the rich young ruler, Jesus said, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Ah, there it is again. Jesus has just exposed the idolatry in this man's life who thought of this world's goods as his God. And to the would-be disciple who said, I can follow you, Only after my father dies and is buried, Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead and more. He demands that for his sake, we abandon even our family. Repentance and faith must be preached for there to be salvation at all. And this is how we should preach the gospel. Stop asking people to ask Jesus into their lives, for that phrase isn't even used in the Bible. Instead, let's ask people to flee from their sins and to cling to Christ. Are you willing to abandon your sin? And are you willing to cling to Christ as your Savior? That's what you need to ask. For that's exactly what the Bible teaches us to ask. Or will you abandon your sin and surrender your life, along with all your lifestyle choices, into the hands of Jesus and allow him to have authority over your soul? See, I need to pause and reflect on, on, on one reason I've often been criticized. You know, I, for one, would never baptize an individual who, for example, is living in open sin, either in their sexual lives or in some other area. You know, I've often been criticized with these words. People have said, are you saying that people need to be perfect to become Christians? And to that, I respond, absolutely not. I certainly don't. You know, because I, for one, I'm overwhelmed by the sin that still remains in me to this day. How then could I say anything like that? But if we show ourselves unwilling to flee from sin, we show that we have no intention to seek Jesus as our Savior. We want him to give us what the late Dallas Willard used to call the gospel of sin management. We come to Jesus and ask him that he would manage our sin better rather than asking him to save us from our sin. Every once in a while, I'll hear someone say something like this. I made Jesus my Savior years ago, but now I finally decided to make him my Lord. Now, behind that statement is the idea that Jesus can in some way be your Savior without being your Lord. And according to the Bible, it's impossible. 
Romans 10 verse 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Did you notice we didn't confess Jesus as Savior only? He is Lord. That is the saving confession. And with that in mind, let's now go to one of the key passages that speak about our salvation. I'm here referring to Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. What a glorious passage this is. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. What a glorious truth. We're saved by grace. What else could it be? I mean, after all, we were dead in sin. Sin had mastered us. We were, as Paul says, in that very same passage, by nature, the object of God's wrath. And yet, in spite of the fact that we deserve nothing but judgment and the eternal hell that follows, God was rich in mercy. He extended the most valuable commodity that anyone can receive, the grace that provides forgiveness for our sins. We didn't earn this. We didn't deserve this. Indeed, we deserve death and hell. Grace means that we received what we didn't earn. And this is the glorious truth. Yet, what must we do? The grace that God gives comes to us by faith. Now we understand. Faith means repenting from sin and trusting Christ to save us from our sin and the judgment to come. That's how grace came. God gave us the ability to believe. And that's why no one can boast before God. Even the most holy individual among us will grow increasingly humble and acknowledge that the freedom from sin they now enjoy came completely as a gift from Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. Have you ever believed? Have you ever believed that Jesus Christ can be your Savior? What must you do? You must believe in Jesus Christ to be saved. Thanks for your message today, John. Uh, This whole repentance issue makes me think, you know, once a person has given their lives to the Lord, would you suggest to them that they have to actually intentionally stop and and think back upon the sins that they committed and make right? Uh, Yeah, I mean, obviously. I mean, I I think, as I've said, at conversion, uh, we are to repent of known sins, uh, everything that we know of, and we must tell the Lord at the very outset, it's not my will, but thine be done. We've got to do that. Now, I think, Ben, uh, repentance is a part of, of life after we come to Christ. Um, the, ben, the, the farther I've grown into Christ, I have come to realize that the sins that I repented of at my conversion were the minor things. And I'm learning about pride and unbelief in all sorts of areas. And so repentance is a form of life afterwards, for sure. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Your Salvation Story, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. There is perhaps no scripture more readily quoted or memorized than John 3.16, but sometimes, The things we think we know lose our attention. If you be needing a reminder of the wonderful promise held in this verse, then you'll be pleased to hear that Dr. John Neufeld has endeavored to refresh, deepen, and renew us in this simple yet profound message of God's love in his new five-message series called John 316. Dr. John expertly unpacks each element of this verse and applies it to the grand perspective of God's eternal plan for his glory. 
Because the saving message of the gospel is central to this verse, we wanted to make this CD series available to everyone this month for free. So request your free copy today by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.